When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to His Darker Materials, the show that goes episode by episode through HBO and the BBC's His Dark Materials. I'm one of your hosts, Helen O'Hara, and with me as always is Dave Corkery. Hello, I'm the other host. (laughs) And we are going to be talking through season three, episode four of His Dark Materials today. So spoiler warning, as ever, we're going to be talking about everything that happens in season three, episode four, and everything previous to that if it comes up. But we will be trying to avoid spoilers for the rest of the show going forward. So in this, we're going to be uh, recapping what happened this week on the show and also chatting to some of the people who made it. We've got a fantastic lineup of guests this season and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But first of all, let's talk about this episode, Dave. What did you think? Yeah, I thought this was a good episode. I think it's a bit of sort of table setting again, isn't it? It feels like, uh, you know, we're, we we're, we finished our big climax in the, the German island in the house and everyone's come together and now we're sort of resetting the stakes a bit. I thought it was a very emotional episode, part, parts of this, particularly the Lyra and Pan scene, which we'll, we'll, we'll get to. But uh, yeah, look, uh, the, uh, good stuff. And I got some great Mrs. Coulter scenes in this as well. Some fantastic Mrs. Coulter scenes, because I think it's really, really fascinating what this episode does with her, which is to put a Mrs. Coulter who has learned how to care about one thing in the world, namely Lyra, and plug her back into the magisterium and have her try to pull those same levers and, you know, exercise that same power that I think she did before. And you see that in her interactions with with everybody this episode. Should we should we start with her and then go into to Lyra and Will? Let's do it. Because I thought she was she's fascinating. So she basically has escaped from Azrael in the intention craft. She's used it to travel between dimensions from his Republic back to her own world, back to the Magisterium, to Geneva. I think it is, isn't it? And she immediately sets about insulting everybody that she can. <laughs> yeah. She's immediately trying to get Gomez's backup, Father Gomez's backup. She's immediately referring to Father President McPhail as Hugh. Love it. She refers to Gomez uh, immediately after that as the boy. Is the boy staying? You know, she kind of uh, wraps Dr. Cooper back around her, her sort of finger. You know, she's really going for it in terms of just trying to use everything at her disposal. I think that's how she exercises power and exerts control in many ways, isn't it? You know, she she's flipped the that that patriarchal thing of of, you know, putting people down and and like, you know, put, positioning yourself. She's positioning herself above them somehow even though she's clearly in the weakest possible position from any So weak. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, but what's what's amazing is that it, it kind of Mostly works well. Well, the other the other thing which she employs with McPhail or, or Hugh, as she likes to call him, she's pulling all the other levers. You know, she's using her sexuality again. She knows how to push his buttons and remind him of, you know, you wouldn't be anywhere without 
me. You know, I got you here. Don't forget you're a murderer. You know, you know, she she's playing him like a like a, a fiddle. Yeah, like a two-bit piccolo. Exactly. But I thought Will Keen was particularly good in in this scene that that uh, you know he says very little, but his uh, he's expressing you know this um, what it, this conflict, this inner conflict and turmoil. He can't handle her; she's got him yeah. in knots. Like <laughs> yeah, he didn't just get the job through nepotism because his daughter is Daphne. You know, he's he's very very good, good actor. Yeah. <laughs> to be clear, that was a joke. Uh, I'm not suggesting he got his job through nepotism. But no, I I thought he their their dynamic is absolutely fascinating because you know. On on one hand, she's sort of asking him, "Is he still sort of self punishing?" And 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 there's you know there's sort of there's a real twisted undercurrent to every interaction between them. He is her enemy now, and and I think he, I think he's realised that, and she definitely has realised that. Like she's definitely her mission there is to protect Lyra. Yeah. That is that is what she is there for. Actually, there may be a little bit of an element of looking for a new ally because she doesn't trust Azrael. But that is, that is the, her number one priority now is to is protect Lyra. And so like even the way she dresses during the episode, so she is brought her own old clothes. I think courtesy of her mother, isn't that isn't that what they said? Yeah, I, that was an interesting moment because we don't we don't know a lot about her relationship to her mother previously, right? No. But I think we have reason to believe that she was I think she was a abused as a child. I don't know if that's emotionally, physically, some other way. I don't want to get into that, but I think there's definitely meant to be real trauma in her background. And I think that's why her monkey is unnamed and never speaks. That's why she was so determined to get the power of the witches and, and trained herself to separate from the monkey in the way that the witches could separate from their demons. She wanted to to accumulate power to make herself safe, at least at some point in her childhood. And that gesture when they bring in this, you know, this box from her mother, I'm sure she wanted to help. You know, that's the, the fact that she has to steal herself to open the box, I think tells you that there's there's deep, deep damage there somewhere. Yeah, they say, they're saying a lot with very little. It's very, very good storytelling, I, I thought. It really is. And then to put on the bright purple dress to kind of try and slip back into that role of the kind of arch manipulator of the sexy woman amid all of these priests sworn to presumable celibacy. And then to flip it again, to get back into her rebel clothes and basically try to full on escape. I love what the show's doing there though, about like, you know, that that there is pa- there is power in fashion in and I'm not really not being facetious like the, the you know like it because that does sound like a stupid sentence but, the, but <laughs> yeah we are both wearing jumpers like we are not in high fashion let us be it's clear it's super cool <laughs> but there there is there is something in if you look good and you and you feel good uh Mrs Coulter's clothes are representative of of her status often right and she's coming out in this yeah big it's a power suit almost right move and it's like looks awesome and it's colorful and it and she comes she storms out of that room like I'm back baby and she said and, and she has this other brilliant line where she's like the guy's like this age who's supposed to follow her around is like mrs culture you can't go in there it's, it's time for breakfast or whatever and she's like i have no need for breakfast i must pray <laughs> and i just loved that her whole scene with him he was so befuddled by her he had no idea what to do when he goes well I'll, if you try i'll have to go for support and she goes oh yes go for support we all need support yeah, i sometimes. love that yeah, just it, it's interesting because she also has that self-deprecating line just on the clothes thing. She has that self-deprecating line at the start when she goes in to see Hugh, Father President Hugh, 
and it's like, I mean, obviously I was a prisoner. Look at what I'm wearing. Yeah, look at me. You know? <laughs> like, I would never, I would never be caught dead. So are you kidding me? I mean, in fairness, you know, tan isn't her colour. She's a winter, but that's not the point. And then she puts that on again to escape. I love that she dresses for the occasion for her escape. Yeah, exactly. You know? Amazing. In, in a pantsuit. As he, if I was escaping, I'd be wearing a, a pantsuit. I mean, it is probably more more effective than those heels. But, but but you also get the sense that she is slightly less effective as a manipulator now because she cares about a thing. Yes. She cares, because she cares about a person. Exactly. Before it was, I think, more a game. And now it isn't. And that makes a difference. There are stakes now. And, and, and it was the same in the previous episode where Gomez catches her out with the flinch, right? When he, go, he goes to make it, it's the same thing. It's, it, she's got to tell now. Her love for Lyra is a disadvantage for her in the game, isn't it? And yeah, the fact that, you know, there's no getting around it. There's no finessing it. She can't convince them to go after, basically her mission is to convince them to go after, quote unquote, the serpent rather than Lyra. That's that's what she's like. That, that would be her her plan here is like, well, if if Lyra doesn't meet the serpent, then she's not Eve, and therefore everything's fine. Eve is fine. She's not your problem. It's the serpent. It's a good play. And it's it, it's a solid play, yeah. isn't it? And it, and it, it and it leans into the literary stuff, what their beliefs, right? So it's just right. Like Eve was everything was rosy in that in that garden until that bloody serpent came along, right? <laughs> that, that's the theory, yeah. So, so the the problem is, I think she's she's underestimated their inertia you know they have a plan they're moving ahead with that plan why do they need a new plan their plan will work too you know so there's no real reason for them as they see it to change and it it is this it is this uh terrifying mix of science and religion like we said in 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 the last episode that we see we see a little bit more about their plan and the machine that dr cooper has built here and we see gomez stealing that uh that locket of hair again you know it's a uh a, a weakness you know her 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 love for Lyra and that sentimentality has created uh, a situation where she has put her at risk and she's given the game away. So yeah, a lot of just a lot of really good character storytelling, I think, in 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 all of this stuff. And then and ultimately, she gets double crossed or she gets she gets caught out, right? She gets caught. Yeah, yeah exactly. So and I love her whole her whole arc with that machine. You know, she she knows there's a secret, therefore she has to find out what the secret is. As soon as she's talking to Dr. Cooper, she immediately clocks what the, what kind of a device this is. Within a couple of minutes, she's figured out exactly what it does, uh, in fairness, because it's all built on her technology. And then th- just the nastiness of that twist, we're going to use severing you from your demon to power the device that then kills your kid. That's that's some twisted stuff right there. That's mean. It's very good. What, he calls it something like the, uh, you're the bullet, or you, you will be the bullet that ends Lyra. Yeah, yeah, it's poetic. It's it's Shakespearean stuff, that is. It really is. But that whole scene I find really, really disturbing because, you know, she she makes a very solid play and it's something that she's clearly kind of worked for her on some level before is is to come out with a confession and demand a trial for murder. Oh, yes, yeah. Because she knows, like, he can't afford for her to be tried for murder. He can't afford for her to take the stand and say all of this stuff more publicly. Like, that is a disastrous play. That would be full Streisand effect, uh, to put it in <laughs> internet parlance. And she's kind of grandstanding there. But again, because there are stakes now, because she's, like, genuinely engaged in keeping Lyra alive her grandstanding becomes a little bit less effective 
when she's challenged because she really cares. And when he pushes back, she does show anger and therefore she's immediately dismissed as an incoherent emotional woman. Because of course she is. It's a classic play. Bastards. Oh, men, eh? <laughs> Bloody men. Get rid of the lot of them. <laughs> so yeah, really good Mrs. Coulter episode. Am I right in thinking no Azrael? My God, it's like season two. I know. Yeah, he disappears. Oh, he's gone off the grid. But we did, to be fair, we did get a lot of him in the first three episodes. We did. I think we got we our, did. Our, a fair bit of, of McAvoy commando. Yeah. So I guess what, what we did get, we'll finish maybe on Lyra and the Land of Office Administration, but uh, let's check in with Mary Malone. What's she doing? She's still she's still hiking. Yeah, I think I think that first time we see her, she's arrived in the kind of the world of the Malefa. I think that is, you know, she's already there, basically. I don't think there's another gate that she passes through. But yeah, she's sort of in a new world. It seems initially, I think, depopulated. I think there's an element of discouragement there when she's consulting the I Ching and still nothing as she's sitting under that tree. But lo and behold, she wakes up and there's a friendly elephant dude there with a plate full of food offerings. And she basically goes after her, just runs after her, thinking, well, here is somebody who might have some wisdom to share at last. We should say for anyone who's listening who hasn't read the books, you know, these, these, uh, this isn't, there are no spoilers here, but they, these are creatures that do feature uh, quite, quite heavily and they're called the Mulefa. Look, I think we'll talk more in the, uh, in, in the next episode as to sort of the design of them and then the difficulties of adapting that. But yeah, I think, I think this is, again, it's really just yeah, table setting, isn't it? For, for, for what's to come with a nice bit of sort of intrigue. She's still having a lovely time, Mary. This is episode She's, four. She is. Yeah. yeah. Hiking, having naps under trees and meeting <laughs> furry creatures. Nice walk in the woods. But I, th- I think there is an element of her journey being slightly charmed in the book as well. There is an idea that she, like, almost the universe wants her to get where she's going. And so in the book, she's, she essentially does follow the I Ching and follow her kind of instinct or whatever. And it sort of leads her to open gateways, open doorways between worlds. And she sort of wanders through and sometimes gets chatting to people, whether she talks the same language or not. She doesn't always, but just like meets nice people who are happy to share a meal with her. You know, so it's a, it's in the book even, it, it kind of is, they, they he, Philip Pullman kind of hand waves it and said, well, yes, this is, this is this would be more difficult, except it isn't because of reasons. Yeah, no, that's that that's fair. I'm I'm just enjoying what a stark contrast it is to the to the other plot. <laughs> to everyone it's else. nice when you check in with Mary and she's just having a little holiday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Oh, very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, she is. She's having a lovely time, and I have to say, the design of the Malefa that we meet in this episode, I thought was super charming. Like. Not too full on Disney cutesy, but immediately sort of likable and non-threatening and interesting, you know? The eyes, probably one of the most challenging things in any, I would imagine, on any computer generated creature. But I think they they got the right, there's a bit of sort of mischief and like soul behind the eyes. So yeah, it's well done. Yeah, can't wait to see more. Hello. I'm Violet Manners, and welcome to Hidden Heritage, the podcast that brings you inside Great Britain's favourite destinations. From the same team that brought you the number one history podcast, Duchess, Hidden Heritage will uncover the fascinating stories behind the UK's brightest shining hidden gems. 
You'll hear from top experts in British heritage, including custodians, historians, artisans, experts, and even the craftsmen and restorers who've worked on some of the most celebrated historic buildings. We will share the untold and unique stories that celebrate UK heritage, from landmarks to architecture, artifacts to myths and legends. Hidden Heritage will highlight a side to British history you have never seen before. I'm your host, Violet Manners, and founder of Heritage X, and I invite you all to join us on this exciting journey. This is Hidden Heritage. You can find Hidden Heritage wherever you listen to your podcasts. Right. Well, here to talk a little bit more about the sort of the overall thrust of this season and the challenges that lay ahead. I'm absolutely delighted that we have joining us Jane Tranter. Now, she is CEO of Bad Wolf, the company that made the show. She's also, of course, executive producer of His Dark Materials and has been with it since the very beginning. As ever with our interviews, this does contain book spoilers, stuff for the rest of the series. So do tread carefully if you're waiting for surprises in the episodes to come. But otherwise, please enjoy Jane Tranter. Congratulations, first of all, on finishing this epic season. I mean, I remember when I first read this book, I was like, well, that's unfilmable. Did, did you have a similar thought going into this? Yes, I think I probably did. <laughs> um, I think uh, when I started, first starting uh, pitching in serious, in all seriousness to get um, the rights to be able to do it, I... I knew that there would be enormous challenges in book two and book three and thought, but head down, just let me focus on the enormous challenges in doing book one and we'll kick that problem down the the road. And actually, that's the approach that we took the whole time. You can only fear what you're facing today mm-hmm. and then you'll get on to tomorrow's challenge. And so we broke it down every now and again. I would say to people, look, it's just another day in production. It just so happens that in the 18 hours that we're all working together today, that these are the particular challenges we face. So let's just work our way through them and then on we go to the next one. And I mean, the books are such a total joy that the challenge is uplifting, however difficult it is. It's got such rich material in it. You know, you have literally a war between heaven and earth. Uh, You also have two teenagers falling in love. You also have alien creatures and demons and angels. And, you know, you you couldn't ask for much more to play with, certainly. I know. Where, Where else do you get the opportunity to do a story about a young girl going through puberty across three seasons, falling in love and having a war in heaven mm. between rebel angels and dark angels. And it's 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 just such epic stuff, but it's also so personal. It's a very distinctive framework for a very emotional story. And we held that in our minds and our hearts the whole time, that however genre-tastic the whole thing got, at the end of the day, it is the story about a couple of kids trying to work out What's the best thing to do in really difficult and trying circumstances? Yeah, very much so. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Malefits because I feel like that was one of the questions that everybody had about this season. They're going to try and change them somehow. They're going to try and, you know, soften them or, or make them more human-like or do something that makes it easier. And from everything you've said so far, that's... No, they are basically as described in the books. They are. They are. So we... The Mulefa was 
something we we kind of joked about all the way through season one. I remember someone asked me in the um, premiere for season one. They said, "What, what, what has scared you during the making of Northern Lights?" And I said, "Absolutely nothing," because I know I've got the meal effort to come, and so therefore I know what terror is. But you know, onwards we went, and I think that's really where. We came. We come into our own sometimes as a group of program makers for his dark materials, where the Mulefa was the creation of a number of different people who had worked together for some time. Mm. So the design of the Mulefa was the genius of Joel Collins, and the way that he gave them humanity, but made them entirely their own species, and dignity, because the Mulefa are. A, they have much higher consciousness mm-hmm. than than humans, so that has to come across as well. At the same time, we have to have them rolling on seed pods. And despite the fact I suggested to Philip Pullman that maybe we wouldn't have them rolling on seed pods because that might look—I was worried it would look a bit comic—and he was absolutely not. I mean, he, he, it was a real red line. Absolutely not. They will roll on seed pods. The whole point is they work with their environment in a way which is symbiotic and they have to roll on seed pods. This is important. So roll on seed pods they do. And Russell Dodgson, our VFX supervisor, made it work that they were rolling on seed pods. And then Stephen Harum, one of our producers, worked to create, with a linguist specialist, worked to create a language which the particular physical features of Mulefa would work together to make, we thought, these particular sounds wow. out of which we created a language because we were very keen that Mary Malone learns to speak the language of the Mulefa is not the Mulefa who learned to speak English. And so we see Mary Malone learning how to speak the language of the Mulefa and they also part sign with their trunks. So it's slightly spoken and it's slightly signed and it's a combination of the two that Mary learns how to communicate with them. Wow, that's so cool. Mm. And I th- But I think, it, I mean, it is, you know, symbolic of, of, I think, what you've done with the show throughout because th- it has been remarkably faithful to, to very, very difficult books, you know. Tell me a little bit about what we've seen in, in the first couple of episodes because you have added in some some background material. You've, I think, you know, tried to develop some characters who, who we don't see because with Azrael in the book, you know, he disappears and when you meet him again, he has an army of, you know, world's worth of armies and uh, and a gigantic citadel. So here we get a little bit more context for that, it felt like. Yes. Yeah, so we had two things really we wanted to do. One was we had to find a way in the first couple of episodes to begin to lay down what it is Ansel's fighting for, what is the point and purpose. And actually that material was originally going to be contained in an episode, we always call it episode X, that was going to be part of season two, which was an Asriel-focused episode and would have seen Asriel journeying through Chittagatse before everyone left with the Great Spectre attack. And that would have enabled us to have been able to get a little bit more inside Mm. what it is Asriel's doing. So we had to find a way to lay out what it is he wants to do and what the stakes are in the first three episodes. So that's why we saw Asriel journey into the world of a Gunway and recruit him. And you will see in episode three where Jack Thorne has invented a new a new angel character who Asriel will speak to. And, and from that new angel character, we'll begin to get a lot of um, the information that he needs mm. in order to be able to do what he achieves at the end of the season. 
So we expanded to be able to help set the context what Asriel's doing. And we expanded in order to be able to give more space to the character of Asriel, who's a brilliant character. But as Philip Pullman himself would say, he's there by reputation. He's not there by dramatization. And when you've got James McAvoy, you want them there by dramatization. And believe me, they rest by reputation afterwards, but you need to build up the dramatization yeah. first. And also the character of a gunway and just seeing people from different worlds coming together mm. and and try and get a sense of what it is that Azrael's doing. And I think it's in The Subtle Knife, Ruta Scardi reports in on what Azrael's doing and he's growing this huge army very quickly and she says that he even bends time to his will or time bends to his will, something like that. And we wanted to avoid a sense of timey-wimey, but actually just be able to put its grounded fantasy. Mm. We wanted to show the effort that Azrael has to put in in order to be able to gather his republic together. Yeah. That's it's awesome, and it, and it gives you you know as you say so much more for James McAvoy to do, who is, I feel like one of the biggest geeks in on the Hollywood A list. So if, you know he's he's played most of his hero characters. I think, and this this must have been an absolute gift for him. It it really was. And what James McAvoy doesn't know about the books and the character of Azrael isn't worth knowing. I mean, I love all of this. You know, for me, it is one of the great joys of an adaptation is that everyone can tip up with the book in their hand. Um, and everyone's got something to say and 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 a new insight to offer. And and James came right from his entry into the retiring room, which is one of my favourite sequences of the whole thing, because in that period in the retiring room, in episode one, season one, Asriel, everything that happens in there is literally the beginnings of every piece of story material that happens from then on. And James just tipped up with Asriel fully formed mm. and has not varied from that. He clearly had played that character in his head many times over. And it, it's modern and, you know, the hints of Zelensky in in where we get to with him, at, you know, on the eve of the war with the kingdom yeah. of heaven. And it's utterly brilliant. Yeah. And um, also this was, uh, I noticed there was lovely dedication to Helen McCrory because um, it must have been just a horrendous shock as it was for everyone, I think, to lose her so suddenly. Yes, absolutely. And Helen had been James's choice. I mean, but obviously, you know, what a choice. It wasn't as if it was, kind of, ooh, could it be? It was, you know, it was just such a brilliant choice for the, the voice of Stel Maria. And she was fabulous. So, I mean, yeah, tragic in every way yeah, for everyone. Absolutely. So just to sort of wrap up, I mean, what are you excited for people to see as in these final episodes? Because it has been, you know, what, five years? It must have been more for you. I think you've probably been on for, I guess, six or seven if we're... Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. I'm excited for, well, obviously there's the visual thrills of seeing seven, I think it's about seven different worlds we go into in season three. But I'm really excited for people to see Lyra and Will grow up. Mm. I always say that I think part of the stickiness of Game of Thrones was growing up with those Stark kids. And I think that part of the magnificence of what Philip does is we are able to grow up through those books. And I think over the period of time it's taken us to make three seasons of his dark material, some of our audience, well, all of our audience will have grown up across that time. And I, I always think that's a very um, emotionally engaging thing yeah. to do. I am hoping that we will answer everyone's questions and I'll hope we answer everyone's questions in a way which is really satisfying. And I hope that it gives people something to think about, about the nature of loss and about the nature of love and about the nature of hope and the nature of courage 
it's really peculiar, but every season we've done of his dark materials has felt that it's been very resonant. I remember when we were talking about season one and we talked a lot about Lyra and Greta Thunberg. Mm. And when we did season two, we talked a lot about a pandemic, um, the emptying of, of, of places of course, and yeah. a play coming. And in season three, we talk about people who are prepared to stand up and fight for what they believe in and fight for freedom of truth and freedom of creativity and wage war on anyone who is trying to suppress and oppress. So it, it feels very timely as well. Yeah, it really does. Well, listen, can't wait to see the end of it. And thank you so much. So let's talk about uh, Lyra and... And will they're in? We don't think this is the land of the dead at this stage, or it doesn't appear. We we learn that this is the transition to the land of the dead, right? Yeah. So in the book, there's one point where they sort of they're trying to cut through to the land of the dead. They're trying to get there, and they sort of go through some worlds. I don't remember a number, and they get to this world where it's like a, a little house in the in the country, and there's a dead guy basically outside. There's there's this this dead body in the garden outside the house, whether there's been robbers or something who have come through or whether it was like some kind of just heart attack or something. I, I don't remember that that was made clear in the book, but he, he's lying there dead. And they're a bit traumatised. But So Will tries cutting through to the next world and it's quite difficult to do. And then they find the same guy up and about and talking. And so barring time travel or, you know, identical multiverse twins, which this doesn't really go in for as a, as a concept, that's basically the the world of the recently deceased on their way to the land of the dead, I guess. So they kind of skip those intermediary stages and just have us walking down this, uh, is it is it Tenacious D? Was it Lost and Lonely Road? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. So they're just kind of walking around this, down this road with all of these completely silent, uh, rather dusty looking people uh, walking alongside them. Yeah. So, but, but I think, so I think that's the idea. I think this is almost like the yeah, antechamber world to the land of the dead. Yeah. It's the waiting room, isn't it? It's the, uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah the, ultimately. The, quite, quite literally. And, and I think this is an interesting sort of visual. I think we've seen this idea in media before of the, uh, you know, the administrative afterlife, you know, I, I always think of Beetlejuice and, yes. uh, <laughs> the, uh, but I think this, the show puts its own kind of stamp on it you know we spoke last week it's about the look it's sort of you know an rng post-apocalyptic desolate kind of look and i think and i think and then you know fluorescent lights and drained of color i mean it's like it is uh, an, an oppressive atmosphere like any waiting room is and and i thought you know this is a really small thing but i think in you, you they've cast really good uh, character actors in these tiny bit roles as sort of land of the dead administrators. Uh, so the 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 ferryman that we see at the end. Oh yeah, he was fantastic. Fantastic, and and the the guy even up on the on the sort of I don't know lifeguard stand thing at the beginning. Th those are recognisable British character actors that we see in a lot of kind of quality dramas. And to get them for literally a thirty second role, I think just shows, you know, they care about giving this place some real kind of weight and some heft to it. So I thought that was pretty cool. I like that they both played those roles as, you know, they're, they're tricky, they're tricky kind of kind of characters because, you know, the, you can go for the sort of uh, all-knowing beings who are very holier than thou, but they, they deliberately by, as you said, casting them as, I would say quite 
likable and down to earth sort of English chaps. There's just something like a granddad vibe about, and and then the, <laughs> and then there's this sort of sort of just beleaguered frustration from from them all, like oh, just like come on. And I particularly liked with the boatman. You know, he's just like I've had warriors and kings and you know all sorts of people, and they all end up going the same. I'll end up here. Yeah. I think that's so the boatman I think it's Peter White and the uh the sort of bureaucrat up on the thing is Jared Horan and you will you, you've seen them in stuff. Just trust me. You've seen them in stuff. The edge of weariness to everything in the world of the dead just just that's felt it. that's the word. Right, just weariness and ennui, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. and and the sort of sort of soul-sucking insipidness of it I thought was was pretty pretty great. But not everything is is gloomy and depressing because death is not. Yes, I, and I love this idea of death being your friend, right? Death is with you from the beginning, from birth. You know, it's an inevitability, but they're there. They're, I, lo- I love this idea of your death. It's per- like the demon, you know, it's personal to you. They're there and they're, and they're, they're a companion. They're with you through the road and... What's the line that 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 woman said? Another great just char- uh, character actor that uh, whoever played that um, that woman who explains this concept, you know, she says something like, "They say that they whisper to you, you know, it's going it's going to be all right." We, we've all experienced death in our lives in one form or another, but I I, I think it's a it's a really nice idea to treat it as a, as a sort of a positive in a way or a or a fact of life, you know, and it's a it's a difficult thing for human beings to do. It is. So I'm obviously a big, you know, fancy nerd, as you know. And I think it's so interesting how many different deaths I've seen in recent years and recent books and recent literature and how often they are relatively benign. You know, angels, not so much. Angels can be, angels will mess you up, you know. But, <laughs> but death in, obviously, Terry Pratchett, death is a pretty, you know, welcoming, likable figure. Death in the Supernatural series was well. The the big boss death is is pretty scary, but all his subordinate deaths are very much like this. They're kind of bureaucrats, just here to do their job and help you through to the next stage. The Sandman, and obviously Sandman, yeah, is who's the most warm and welcoming and friendly death that you can imagine. And so I feel like we're you know our literature is maybe trying to tell us that. It's okay, and that death is is literally a part of life. Um, and I think I think this one is is done really, really well, and and portrays that beautifully. I like this sort of back and forth between Lyra and her death. You know, it was all very calm and reassuring, and kind of knowing. And we and again, we see Lyra silver tongue in action. Right? She she convinces her death to to help. Her, you know, li- literally convincing like supernatural forces. To, to help her. She's so determined and, and so charming. I think we're seeing Lyra lie less and less, right? Yeah, like her lying wasn't effective. And and ultimately what, you know, her her big argument with death is, um, well, you've been with me my whole life. You know me. Therefore, you know I'm not going to do anything you just suggested. Like that's not, yeah. that's a non-starter. So <laughs> let's get serious now and tell me what I want to freaking know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's no argument against that because obviously that's all true. And when she has tried to lie, when she does try to lie at the beginning, she kind of loses the thread of herself a little bit. It's like, oh, well, I'm looking for my friend. Well, I'm actually trying to find my friend. Well, I'm actually doing this. You know, it's sort of 
all over the place a little bit. Yeah, it's almost like she's rusty at it or she's just getting further now by telling the truth. And I think we are seeing a shift in, in Lyra in that regard. Yeah, no, she's um, she's definitely growing up. But her almost monomaniacal obsession with getting to the land of the dead is difficult for everyone around her. You have her death trying to talk her out of it. You have Pan being terribly hurt by it, which we'll talk about in a second. You have Will having major, major, major misgivings. His argument is basically, I spent ages looking for you. I'm not going to wave you off now. It's like, okay, but, you know, it's quite a lot for her to ask all the same. And it does seem like a bad idea. It, it does. I mean, just on the face of it. Yeah. I, I mean, we know it all. how it all pans out. No pun intended. I mean, in these moments, you're like, I mean, I, I'd be turning back pretty quickly. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it cannot be worth it just to say sorry. Absolutely. It it, it seems like a, a, a very, yeah, big risk for a very small reward as things stand. But but I thought Pan was absolutely heartbreaking in this episode. Like from minute one, he's just like, no, this is not right. This is not right. These people should have demons. They don't have demons. It's freaking me out. He has that great confrontation with, with Lyra where she says, you were on my side I thought I was by your side. And just the yeah. difference of that one word. Heartbreaking. Extraordinarily done here. Just all yeah, all those all those little dialogue touches. Um, but mostly the, you know, the visual effects work, I think, in this episode, particularly in that heartbreaking separation scene was was really beautifully done. And I think visual effects are so uh, are, are most effective, right? They say when you don't notice that they're there. And I didn't. I wasn't looking at you know, look at how nice his fur is. You know, you know, like it's, it's, it's. I was just believing in this interaction and in this very sad interaction between a girl and uh, and herself. You know, this part of her that you have to let go. And when she said "I love you" to Pan, it just got oh, that got that got me bad. It was yeah. It's it's so upsetting, and it's it's so weird when you try to unpack it. You know, as a sort of as a girl saying goodbye to her best friend to go off with her other best friend to to rescue her third best friend you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. it it's ups- it would be upsetting just as that but when you start considering that it's literally a part it's her, it's a part of her it's her soul that she's saying goodbye to in order to do this thing that's kind of a mind blowing concept just of well, how much is she risking how much is she giving up for this you know what does it mean that pan is so hurt by what she is doing to herself who is him, you know, it's, I, I just, I kind of get lost in that concept when I think about it too much. It's, it's kind of massive. Again, it's another point where we're, I think I was, and I'm sure a lot of the audience are looking at it and thinking, no, Lyra, this is like, this is a bad idea. The reward's not really worth it. I think she's just so deterministic or determined, as I should say, as a character, you know, she's got this thing in her head. She ha- just has to see it through no matter kind of how much she sacrifices along the way but again like you said about um like mary being guided by something i feel like lyra there's a tug right lyra's being tugged towards this with prophetic dreams and and just this sense of momentum and destiny fate destiny whatever you want to call it it it, there is a little bit of that in the show isn't there and i don't know if it's meant to be or not, because I don't know if that undermines the whole... Free will. Yeah, the free will and the sort of there is no fate, but what we make kind of deter- Terminator stance, you know. I, I don't know if that's meant to be there or not, but there is really a sense of, 
of fate or of outside forces acting on Lyra and and Mary in particular at this point. And you know, I mean, maybe on someone like Mrs. Coulter too, but she just seems to be exact acting pretty much as herself, apart from the whole falling in love with Lyra as, as her daughter. But you know, because she's so freaking metal in this episode, there's that bit about <laughs> what what yeah. do you intend? Destruction. Yeah. <laughs> so good. You know? yeah. <laughs> and and you know, and maybe this is just Lyra being herself, as you say. Maybe she is just that determined. But equally, it, you know, it, it does feel like the universe, like dust itself, is maybe trying to nudge things to help them along against this these overwhelming odds. And so that brings us to that heartbreaking last shot of Pan left behind, disappearing into the mist on the dock as Lyra basically cries out for him. I mean, it's hard to think of many more upsetting endings to uh, you know, a television episode um, of late, especially something like this that's meant to be, at, to, at least to some degree, a family show. Well, this is very, uh, it's getting darker and darker, isn't it? Like thematically and, and, and quite literally, it's getting super dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Land of the Dead, not well lit. Guys. No. <laughs> so yeah, it's all still to play for um, next episode. But look, let's hope that at least a few people have a, a cheerier time of it when we rejoin them next week. His darker materials is a stripped media production. Our producer and editor is Maddie Searle. All our music was composed by John Dix. Our artwork was created by Sam Gilby. Our executive producers are Kobe Amanaka and Tom Wally. Our hosts are Helen O'Hara and myself, Dave Corkery. A big thank you to Ian Johnson at IJPR, to Bad Wolf at the BBC, and to all our guests for taking the time to chat to us. If you want to chat to us, you can do it at producers at stripped.media. You just heard a stripped media production.